Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to Chef's Story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today we are broadcasting from Milan, Italy, uh, celebrating Expo Milano 2015, and we're at the JBF American Restaurant with our guest chefs tonight, Evan Hansor and George Weld of the famous Egg Restaurant in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. We came all this way to meet guys. Welcome to Chef Story. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for coming out here. You could have just come down the road. <laughs> I, I, I know. I mean, you know, especially since Heritage Radio is over in Roberta's, it's not that far. You know, we could walk right over and invite you for a pizza. So um, anyway, because we have two of you tonight, I, I think it's incredibly exciting for Milan to have egg in Milan. You know, we should probably call you the Uvo brothers or something like that. Uh, but it, you know, you're 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 the epitome of exactly what we wanted to um, show all the Italians: how seasonal, local, delicious, you know, edgy, you know, in a way, but home, you know, really respect for product. So, um, before we actually get into your um, lives and how egg came about. Uh, Give me some of your first impressions of uh, Milan, Italy. I know, uh, Evan, it's your first trip to Italy. And, George, it might be a more pleasant, I'm not sure, <laughs> but trip than your last uh, time when you lost your passport. But <laughs> um, what, what's, what's your impression? Evan, start with you. First trip. Uh, I mean, it's, been, it's been amazing. I had the chance to travel through Italy a little bit on my way here. Um, so I saw a handful of cities from Venice to Bologna and Florence um, and Milan probably partly because my role here is different has been the one that feels the most kind of real you know everywhere else felt a little bit like a like a, a stage as passing through and it was magical and wonderful but um you know we've been riding around to to the markets here um like using a bike share program you know staying in the same place for more than a day or two it's, it's almost come to feel a little bit like like normal life and a normal life i'd enjoy it very much i think <laughs> um yeah it's been it's been awesome the products you know obviously as cooks the products here have been beautiful um working in a new kitchen has been super interesting interesting being here at the, at the launch of such an interesting and dynamic restaurant you know as this and having as this possible uh, in a new place always has a a lot of energy to it um so yeah it's been pretty pretty special and George, you've been here before, so now coming here to cook and actually, you know, have to work. Well, how's that, how's it feeling? It's, it's great. I mean, as Evan said, like being here with a sort of a a work mentality makes the city feel in a way more real and, and more engaging. Um, it's forced us out into into the world in a way that we wouldn't normally have to go. I mean, we've been so like just some of the little things that we've had to deal with in the first few days or 
you know, learning learning how Italian flour is categorized differently and, and milled differently from American flours. And so how are we going to adjust for those things when we make our biscuits? I remember the first time we went to the grocery store to try to find something that was equivalent to what we use for biscuit flour in the States, I'm just standing in front of a giant shelf of flours and thinking, that I don't... I don't understand what's going on here. This is a very different situation. I mean, I'd heard of Doppio Zero before, but I didn't realize where, it, like, I didn't understand it. So I'm all, literally on my phone in the grocery store researching um, Italian flour classifications and, and getting to know that a little bit. So just little things like that that you would never have to do if you were here as a, as a tourist have been exciting. So tell me, so which flour do you use? Because your biscuits are so delicious in the States. In the States, we use a mix of like an all-purpose flour and a cake flour to try to lower the gluten content a little bit and kind of imitate this famous Southern biscuit flour. White uh, lily. White lily, lily, yeah. And so then, and uh, what flour did you use here and how successful was it? I'm sure everybody's waiting for this information. Yeah, well, it's been very successful, I think, much to our surprise because it as far as we understand, the gluten content is higher in, in the flours we've been using here, but we used a mix of the uh, Doppio Zero and a Dolce flour, you know, a flour intended for pastries, I guess. Um, yeah, I think they're all Doppio Zero, but they have we they have different protein content. Uh-huh. So I've just been, I mean, last night I just used one batch of Doppio Zero and it seemed to come out fine. I mean, a lot of the times with biscuits, it's about the what happens after you get all the ingredients together, so... Um, but it, feel, it just has such a different feeling just to put your fingers in that flour and feel the way it runs through. And when you put the milk in and it doesn't immediately get sucked in the way it does with American flour, it's just, I don't know, it's, very, it's, it's a moment of real anxiety when you're <laughs> getting ready to serve these things to people. But um, it all ended up, you know, it, you, cooking is so much about um, responding to the things changing in front of you as they change. And um, so... There's no autopilot here. You know, it's all like everything is, we have to think through everything. And that's been exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even the metric system has been a, right. has kept kept us from sitting on every little, the most basic things we have to think about. So It kind of makes you very present as you're cooking. You're kind of forced to be uh, as alert as, as one can be paying attention because it, it, you haven't done this before in a way. It's almost like doing it for the first time. Yeah. So let's talk about the first time. <laughs> so... Um, where uh, I know you grew up in Florida. I believe you grew up in the Northeast. I grew up okay. in the South. In, yeah. Oh no, you go. Oh, you grew up in the. I yeah, had both. a mix of Florida you and had the Northeast. That's yeah, where yeah. that's yeah. where it came in. All right. So tell me, tell me your both childhoods. What are what are the like standout moments when you were growing up? Any cooking moments, or were you just turned off to food and skateboarding? No, um, I was turned off to skateboarding, but I was definitely turned on to food uh, I mean my dad cooked a bunch and I you know there are photos and memories of being in the kitchen not cooking just kind of like banging on pots and being around but getting a getting a feeling for the pleasure of being in a kitchen you know while food was being prepared and um you know I remember visiting a farm when I was in elementary school in Florida and tasting a radish for the first time and f- it's like the most insane thing I'd ever put in my mouth is so spicy and crunchy and fresh and I hated it and I knew I would never like them, although now I do. Um, I was telling the story last night when I was a kid, I called into the, in Florida, I called into this radio show, like a kid's radio show, uh, a trivia segment. 
um, the question was which came first, lemon or lime, and I had no idea, but I like, ran into my parents' room. I somehow got through and shook them awake, and they mumbled something incoherent, and I guessed, and I got the right answer. And the prize was a thing called my first cookbook, uh, which I guess was kind of ominous you know for where my where my path well, what did come first the lemon or the lime to, to be honest to this day i don't remember um <laughs> i'm gonna bet the lime all right great we're well to see you, we'll see you <laughs> right. a glass of prosecco yeah. on that right. one <laughs> um and then you know living in connecticut we lived in a town that was very, you know, kind of in the woods to so this sense of a connection to... Where'd you live in Connecticut? A town called Reading, uh, which is kind of surrounded by a little bit, like, more suburban or, like, towns like Greenwich or, like, Fairfield, Danbury. The Connecticut that you think of, uh, this is a little bit off the beaten path, and there are a few farms down the road, so there's a different connection to the food and nature mm-hmm. and, and that sort of... Uh, those sort of interests that developed have definitely stayed with me, you know, into, into becoming a cook as long as it took me to get there. Hmm. And George? Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things that I've realized as I've gotten older is I grew up in a house where my, you know, my mother's family was an old Southern family, my father's family was an old Yankee family, and we kept moving farther and farther south to my father's chagrin, um, and the family just became more and more Southern. But, um, wait, 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 explain that to me. So where did you start off, and like, at what ages were you being southernized? Well, <laughs> we, you know, when I was actually born just outside of Boston, where, and I that's lived there for... That's where I thought. Yeah. That's where the Northeast came yeah, from. Yeah, there where. definitely is a connection. But I, we lived there for, uh, I lived there for just a few months, then we moved to Northern Virginia, and then we moved to uh, Illinois, and then to south- Southwestern Virginia, and then to South Carolina. Um, and we, the, the entire time we were doing that, we were also spending vacations and holidays in, at my family's farm in Virginia and in North Carolina. So I think, uh, you know, my father was always trying to instill a sense of Yankee pride in us. <laughs> but the fact that we kept going deeper and deeper into the South and all the sort of cultural markets of our lives were Southern um, made it sort of a lost cause for him. But the one place he would really put his foot down was at dinner. So my mother would make kind of traditional Southern food for us all the time because that's what she knew growing up. And my, I didn't like it because I didn't like any food. I only liked pizza and really just pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and so she would make grits or she would make, you know, broiled tomatoes or uh, shad roe. And I was like so grossed out by all of it. And my father would give me a pass on it because it was southern food and he and to him if i if you know it was it was a moment it was a point for him if i refused to eat southern food so it was a weird childhood because that was the only way in which it really um came up a lot but when i um uh, this is funny to be in italy about this but like there a point came in my life later on when i was out of college and i um, was cooking a lot for myself and became obsessed with italian food and really um kind of disappointed that I didn't come from an Italian background because I thought it was such an exciting and um, rich culinary heritage um, and then it, it dawned on me after a few years of just sort of being depressed about it that I had my own rich and amazing culinary heritage and it had been us in that we'd kind of like pushed aside because it seemed so gross um, so it just gave me a, it, that was sort of an eye-opening moment that allowed me to look back over my entire childhood and realize Wow, all these things that I have pushed aside are actually amazing and wonderful, and it's time for me to try to recapture that. So when you identify with a place growing up, where is it? 
Yeah. Uh, I always say Virginia, South Carolina, and North Carolina. But I guess <laughs> if, if I had to pick one, it would probably be uh, Louisa County, Virginia, which is where my family's farm is. My grandmother had a farm there. That she, it was her husband's great uncles or something. I don't know exactly. So that's probably the place that I feel the most... So tell me something about both your childhoods that has nothing to do with cooking and had a lot to do with influencing you as a person. Hmm. Well, I mean, the, I guess there, there are three big things, and uh, that would probably be my siblings, the three that came after me, which, of course, each You're time... You're the oldest yeah, in the family? Each time someone new comes along, it, it definitely changes your life, and you know you don't necessarily maybe realize at the time that you're, the way you reference your, yourself in the world. Um, and growing up the oldest, like you have... Uh, just a different sort of responsibility, a different uh, uh, understanding of, the, of what happens in the world and that new things come after you and, you know, they, they will forever and you'll eventually you know, move on and, and more new things will come behind. Um, and that's, you know, something I think about a lot. Um, and as the, the responsibility to other people, like f- sometimes at the dinner table when you have a lot of kids, you feel a responsibility only to yourself. Uh, I, I as George knows from eating lunch with me, I'm, I'm <laughs> more than happy to snack food off his plate uh, with, with no, uh, with no self consciousness. No warning. Yeah. Or warning, uh, because you never know where it's going to yeah, go. There are right. three other people running around. Right. Um, so that certainly changed, changed me a bit. Um, but, uh, you know, have, having a sense of the importance of community and, and, um, having people close to you and having shared experiences, whether it be around food or whether it just be around, uh, uh kind of anything, any moment in the day, um, from something mundane to something exciting. Uh, I think that, that, and the fam, the way my family has been structured and the way, you know, our, So your family was very close, I take it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and still, we still are very close. And I think the, the feeling of family and community has, has always been really important. Well, to so me. what's your favorite family meal in Remember. the year? Member. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to go there. We're not starting sibling, yeah. sibling rivalry. Here. I'll tell you off. Off mic, um, but is it Christmas Eve dinner for Polish? You know, I have to say, um, well, Thanksgiving is up there. You know, a food centered holiday. We all like love cook, we cook together. Um, it's a beautiful time in Connecticut. Um, it's getting cold enough to have a fire after dinner. You know, and uh, but it's it's still nice during the day. Uh, although now we have kind of a. a a ritual that sort of rivals it. We call the beast feast. We do a big, a big pig roast or some sort of animal roast uh, in our backyard in Connecticut every year. And that's become the kind of our big community thing. And the fact that it's particular to us makes it special in a way. Um, that's kind of become the thing we all look forward to. Yeah. Every year. Okay. Surprise me with something in your background, Jordan. <laughs> that, that, that is very poignant, but um, food is central to you. I get that. But can you tell me something that's not food-related in your background? I'll try. I mean, I'm also the oldest of four children. So oh, interesting. Right. Did yeah. you both know that? Oh, it goes much deeper than that. Yeah, oh, my gosh. There's a lot, <laughs> All right, we're gonna get a lot of parallels. Chapter three of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if I had to sort of say, like, one, other than that, like, one really uh, powerful shaping force in my life, I mean, my family was extremely religious. Um, I'm not religious myself anymore, but I think the growing up in a family that, I mean, one of the main um, threads of their faith was the idea of grace. You know, the idea that the things that you have are given to you um, 
without your having done anything to deserve them, um, and that they're a gift, and that that's an amazing um, p- p- position to be in in life. I think that's had a really prof- profound effect. I mean, just I mean, I'm trying to think of something that wouldn't be too obvious, but um, that's pretty deep. It's a. Uh, it's shaped the way I think about everything, and um, even though a lot of the rest of the, you know, the a lot of the rest of what religion uh, l- l- brings, I've I've let go of. I think that idea of grace and um, has has persisted. Um, and I mean, I'm just tempted to start talking about how it's played out in food, but I won't. Just for the sake of- <laughs> All right. Well, okay. So we're going to take a break here, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef Story, and today we're broadcasting from Milan, Italy, at the Expo. But actually, we're at the JBF American Restaurant in the Galleria, which is right downtown central Milan. You couldn't get more central. Uh, The Duomo is right across the piazza here, and the JBF Restaurant is um, way up in the heavens of the Galleria, which is this gorgeous mall, like 150-year-old mall, and um, we have guest chefs from America to show the best and brightest, and two of the best and brightest, Evan Hansor and George Weld, are here today with us. So let's get let's get talking on this journey to egg. Um, so you, you grow up, I can attest to that, and <laughs> so you're still working on it. So where did your career paths lead you to becoming chefs and why? Well, um, I went to college in New Orleans at Tulane. Um, and I studied English and philosophy there. And so the natural progression was to end up in a kitchen. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I studied at Tulane and obviously it's an amazing city, um, amazing music city, amazing food city, cultural, um, culturally rich as it gets. Um, and, but I left there with no, with no plans to, to be a cook. I had cooked very briefly at this kind of, um, elevated po' boy shop, uh, where everyone went after the Tulane baseball games to drink and eat po' boys and tilapia and barbecue duck. Um, and wasn't really thrilled with the experience. Uh, it was kind of a place where, you know, you cut your steaks out of a bag and throw it on the griddle. There was no story to the food. There was no uh, connection to anything beyond the, the kitchen. And not that I had much awareness about that sort of stuff at the time anyway. It just it, it didn't ring a bell with me. Uh, I moved back to Connecticut uh, and started looking for jobs in sort of publishing realm. Uh, and in New York City? In New York City, yeah. And um, in, the mean, in the meantime, I had popped into this restaurant uh, in a town pretty much next to mine called Westport uh, to a restaurant called The Dressing Room 
the chef Michelle Nishan um, was has kind of been a leader, you know, in the sustainable food movement for a long time. Um, and was owned by Paul Newman, yeah, correct? Michelle and Paul, yeah. Um, so I got there, and somehow with the almost uh, non-existent experience that I, I had, got a job there. Um, and they said, "Great, you can work the grill." So you, ha- so you, your only job um, experience before that was the pull boy shop. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, wow, what a teacher, Michelle Nishan. It was great. Yeah, him and uh, John Holsworth, who ran the kitchen at the time. Uh, you know, I couldn't have landed in a better place for mm-hmm. for. Not only just culinary education, but also for an education into the things that would end up tying me to food long term, which are the issues, the story, um, the power, you know, and the connections that that run through food um, in all areas of culture and society. Um, So I began reading the books that became formative for me, things like Slow Food, um, things like Omnivore's Dilemma, Dilemma, Wendell Berry, and cooking this amazing uh, food there with a farmer's market in the parking lot and whole animals coming down the basement steps and just kind of learning um, why food was important and the whole while thinking it's just going to be a, a short-term thing for me. I was like, this is really cool, but I'm going to you know, get an editing job and then I'm going to write and then that's how it's going to be. And a, a year, year-ish later, I kind of had to come to terms with the fact that that it didn't seem like that's how it was going to be. Uh, so I decided if I was going to keep this cooking thing up, I'd go to New York uh, and see what it was like in the big city. Uh, and I popped in to a restaurant called La Conda Verde, and I worked there for a few months, and I was still in this undecided place where I thought I would go back to academia and ended up leaving to pursue a, a Fulbright um, grant. And after I'd finished the application for that, I needed money because I'd moved to New York and now I didn't have a job. Uh, so I hopped on Craigslist and found this place, Egg, that was uh, hiring line cooks. I'm like, well, that's, that sounds pretty easy. You know, like, <laughs> I'll, I'll do that. And, and you know, the ad was, was written really thoughtfully and um, the sentiments in there seemed to tie into what I kind of loved about the dressing room, the local sourcing. So this is while you have your application in for Fulbright. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, which eventually was successfully rooted against by this guy over here, George, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and that's how I ended up finding my way into egg first as a cook and to where we are now. Where I've you know been there for almost sixty years, six years, and held a number of roles and uh, seen the restaurant you know and and myself change a lot over that time. So we're going to get into that too. So George, yeah, you you have a lot of. Um, incredible vision and, and talent where did you where did your journey start um well i guess i uh, my first job was in a it was in a restaurant and uh it was on this island that we lived in on in south carolina called john's island and this restaurant had, a, had been was opened shortly before hurricane hugo came through and destroyed all of charleston um and it was opened in a uh right along a really ugly highway in a in a restaurant space that had been home to several play, failures before um and the guy who opened it was from out of town he was a yankee he was you know had a strange last name it sounded, it sounded like evans <laughs> um and anyway so it was just like everything there was there was nothing suggesting that it would succeed but um when the hurricane came through and suddenly the city was flooded with all kinds of people from all from all over the place. This restaurant became a, a hub, sort of a social hub for people who were doing work there to help restore the city. 
Um, and so I got hired as a busboy and dishwasher and had no interest in, in cooking um, long-term at all. But it was I got to watch this guy who would come in every morning and make everything by himself um, from scratch, and then he would ring everybody up when they were done. He was busy, 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 and um, he was running around the entire time and working really hard um, and creating an enormous and potent community in the, in the course of doing all that. Um, but I left that place. I went off to college. I worked in a couple other um, terrible restaurants. I worked at the Pizza Hut Express. I dropped out of college <laughs> and moved back to South Carolina and worked in a terrible seafood restaurant that was in a marina where shrimp were brought in, um, but we used frozen shrimp from So, Ecuador. wait, wait, wait. So, you loved pizza growing up as a kid, and you wind up working at Pizza Hut Express. Yeah. At that stage, did the pizza have anything to do with attracting you to that, and where was your palate at in those days? Uh, wow. What, I'd never even thought of that, that experience as a culinary one, in a way. Um, <laughs> Me neither, but... Um, the Pizza Hut Express job was pure expedience. I just... Uh, my friend of mine got a job there and he would come home after every shift with just stacks of pizza because um, you could take home the screw-ups after every shift. Um, that policy ended after I started working there because we would just screw up pizza after pizza <laughs> after pizza and take them home. But, um, it, you know, I, I had actually in the interim, um, in between working at the little restaurant on John's Island and going to college, I'd become a vegetarian. I'd read uh, Diet for a Small Planet become a vegetarian, and started thinking a lot more about how food choices um, affected our health and the environment, which I was really passionate about protecting at the time, and still am. <laughs> um, obviously, Pizza Hut Express doesn't fit into any of that, but um, it, it was a... Uh, so my, my palate... You know, it was a time when I think, for me, a job and what I cared about, just I didn't think about how they might come together you know I, I did work at Pizza Hut because that was where I could um, meanwhile I was trying to figure out how to be a vegetarian in um, the southwest which is where I was in school um, in any case I, I followed a course sort of like sort of like Evan did um, I um, finally graduated from college after years of knocking around in kitchens and thought um, I don't want to work in kitchens anymore because it's hard and stressful and I, you, you leave dirty and, uh, you know, I, I do well in school. I'll be an academic. So I went off to grad school. Um, what were you studying? Uh, literature. So I... I oh, so the two of you, my yeah. four siblings, oldest, yeah. literature. Yeah. 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 How closely do you look like? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, so, so, yeah, so I went, I went off to grad school First at, at Boston University to study creative writing. While I was there, I, I also temped at a um, cookbook distribution center. Um, just again, it's like a random job that just fell into my lap. Um, but because I was there, I was seeing every new cookbook that came out would come. I would look at look through it and just got more and more excited about it. And and felt more and more like, oh, it's too bad I, my life didn't take me down that road because I love cooking. I think food's really important. But uh, it was so hard and so dirty and so like painful, and I'm going to go have a cushy life in a you know college somewhere. Um, so I finished grad school in Boston, went to the University of Virginia to start on a PhD, and again, so, you know, I was in school, but I was living on my grandmother's farm in Louisa County, a few you know half half an hour away, and and started a garden. Met my neighbor, who was an old an old very old man who who had been gardening. Um, for years in the in town 
he would bring me uh, bags of tomatoes after work every day, and or when I, I would get home from school, there'd be a bag just sitting on my on my porch. So again, I was just like, you know, my head was in one place and my tongue was doing something else. Like I was out, you know, working in the garden or learning about learning about the importance of soil because I would eat the tomatoes that my neighbor was growing that he'd grown in soil that he'd worked on for years, and then eat my own. And mine, he was like, these are the same seeds, but mine tastes terrible and his tastes amazing. Um, and again, like I moved to New York, like like uh, like Evan did to try to get a job in publishing, and there were there were none to be had for for me anyway. So, um, I mean, I really just sort of, I tried out all these different things, and the kitchen just took me back. So, a, f- a friend of mine had a restaurant in Williamsburg that he wasn't using in the mornings because they opened at noon, and he knew that I was interested in um, cooking and maybe turning back in that direction and said, why don't you give it a shot? And I thought, well, it's very easy. To get to, it'll be easy to get started. It won't cost too much. If, worst case scenario, I'll learn, a little, I'll learn about cooking. I'll learn a little bit about business. And it'll be cheaper than going to culinary school. So um, I went in and started, started doing it. And six months later, we got reviewed in the Times. And So wait, you went in. Were you the chef? Were you? Yeah. Okay. It was... Just, it was I was there, and then I hired a dishwasher and a server. And your experience before that was really working in... Uh, one bad restaurant after another. Okay. <laughs> well, that's one way to learn, yeah, what not to do. What not to do. And I think a lot of the things about um, about cooking that are hard to adjust to if you don't come up through kitchens, are just the, it's just the, the stress and the physical um, side of it. Um, and you learn that whether you're in a good kitchen or a bad kitchen. Right. You probably learn this, how to handle stress better if you're in a bad kitchen. So, you know, I think I think it's really key to be able to sort of bracket that stuff so that you can focus on the food while you're in a kitchen and learn to be comfortable in heat and learn to be comfortable under a lot of pressure. So I felt I felt pretty good going in. Like I knew how to cook, and I knew how to deal with stress. I figured. All right. So when you started cooking on your own, your place, what was foremost in your mind that? It's my place. I want this to come through. Uh, I wanted to do um, a couple things. I wanted um, I wanted to get people. I wanted to show people Southern food in a new way um, because I felt like, especially in New York, Southern food had been turned into sort of a joke. It was very all the Southern restaurants I'd seen in the city were really kitschy, uh, and. My experience, especially in Charleston, was of much more sophisticated restaurants doing much more interesting stuff. And there's no like, why isn't anybody paying attention to this place? This is sort of before, you know, Charleston's current uh, crop of great chefs. We had um, a previous generation of, of amazing chefs, Louis Austin and um, Robert Dixon, were doing incredible things in Charleston before Sean Brock came along. Um, and I just thought. I, I want people to know about that stuff. You know, the grits are actually an exciting food. And my, I was friends with with Matt and Ted Lee, and they were doing interesting stuff with Southern food. And so I wanted to do that. Um, I also wanted to get people excited about breakfast because I love it. And um, I, again, I felt like New York kind of gave it the cold shoulder. And um, I thought there was a lot of a lot. Uh, just, I thought eggs, like for, for, in particular, had a lot, a lot more to say to people than people were willing to listen to at the time. So I, like, I thought, if we just make eggs really well for for folks, um, 
maybe they'll realize breakfast isn't just something to like shovel in your mouth while you're running to work and they'll sit down and take some time. Um, and I, and the third thing was I just wanted to teach myself how to cook really well. So, and the nice thing about the first few months of egg when it was slow is I could just sit there and focus intently on getting everything just right. And I could go through, you know, six eggs to get one plate of scrambled eggs, right. Um, cause there wasn't another order coming in. <laughs> Okay, we're going to come back in a minute. back. You're listening to Chef Story, and today we're broadcasting from Milan, Italy, um, at the Seven Stars Galleria restaurant, where the JBF American restaurant is. And my guests today are Evan Hanzar and George Weld from Egg in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. So, how do you cook an egg well? What, what, I mean, everyone thinks they can cook sunny side up and scrambled eggs, but what's... What really takes it to cook well? This seems like an appropriate time for our book plug. Uh, it's called uh, <laughs> Breakfast. <laughs> it's available now. Um, of course, for each style of egg, there's a different answer. But the the one through is is just attention. Like you just have to pay attention to the egg, and 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 most people, I think, don't. You know, they. You mean the egg as a product? The egg as a as a product, and the and the egg as it as it cooks. That the to the egg as a product and a process, almost. You know, um, you, you know. First, you need to know what you want out of the egg, which a lot of people who you know, if you haven't had a, a properly cooked egg before, you don't know what you want out of an egg. Maybe, maybe you just know. You think you you know what is is possible, um, which I think is one of the things that. As George mentioned, you know he tried to show, and, and we tr- still try to show uh, at Egg that if you have these scrambled eggs set in front of you that look pretty much like the scrambled eggs you've had before, and then you put them in your mouth and you taste them, and they're a revelation because they're not dry and they have nice kind of like small curds and a lot of moisture. Um, that's that's powerful, um, and then you know, well, that's how I want my eggs. Um, and then getting there is is pretty easy as long as you as long as you're paying attention to it um you know cooks come in all the time almost every time uh i think thinking probably in the way that i i did when i came to eggs like i I think i know how to cook eggs they're they're pretty easy uh but then learning the kind of precision um, and the real technique that's there as as simple as it is um changes the end result pretty drastically Um, so don't cook them too much don't cook them too fast um, and don't don't get in the way. Like don't put any. Don't put so, any how specific are you about sourcing your eggs? Well, we get. I mean, we, we've all as long as egg has been around, we've gotten our eggs from um, 
our our dairy provider Ronnie Brook brings eggs from their friends. Um, so first, you know, for a long time we got eggs from Knollcrest, and now we get eggs from um, Feather Ridge. Um, so we're particular. Um, I mean, they're uh, we go through a ton of eggs, um, so we can't we we can't patch together a bunch of smaller um, farmers' eggs the way. We might in an ideal world, um, mm. but you know we know these folks, and we know you know. I think a lot of a lot of what we rely on in food is uh, knowing the people we're buying stuff from, and and having long-standing relationships with them, and trusting them, and understanding that they we have common interests. Um, well, you know, what was shocked to me that eggs are seasonal. Yeah. And you know, and people, and they, they change all the time, mm-hmm. because in the spring, like now, the chickens are eating insects, and and the the yolks are really dark, and mm-hmm. from the protein, and then it gets very light in the mm-hmm. summer when they're doing veg. Yeah, the shells change. The yeah. shells change. Yeah. So d- ha- does that play into the cooking of an egg? The I mean, for us, I would say the biggest. The, when there's a period of time every year where the shells get really thin and weak, then that is a very difficult time. That's in winter, right? It's very hard to be in the kitchen then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just it's hear just like cursing cooks. Like, <laughs> maybe when you pick an egg up and just falls apart in your hands. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and then you know, as the eggs change, I think the style that it affects the most is probably poached eggs. You know, if the white's mm, not right. uh, kind of firm as you'd like it to be, uh, it's more difficult to get a nice shape on your egg. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's interesting when cooks will come in, they'll, they'll see eggs at whatever point during the year. And, and when they change, there's this like, are these eggs all right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. They're, yeah. They're great. They're just different. You know, they're, they're of this time. Yeah. yeah. So here you are, two literature, professional literary people. Mm-hmm. And your first book is a cookbook. Yeah. So, and you collaborate. Yeah. And so here's your first book as a literary person um is 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 that obvious when someone looks at this book that there's a literary um heritage behind it i i mean i think so george george did the writing for all the narrative in the book uh and there's a a clear story you know coming through and through it um at least that's i see it when i read it um and I think some of my favorite cookbooks are the ones that are not just a, a like a joy to look at, but also kind of a pleasure to read. And you feel like you're hearing a voice, you know, through them, uh, not just a collection of recipes. Uh, so yeah, I think I think that comes through. There's definitely a voice to it, and a voice that draws you in and has something to say. And I think something hopefully you want to listen to. How did you feel writing it? It was fun. I mean, I loved to write. Uh, it was definitely, you know. I keep. I've said to Sophie, it's it's so different from the book I always imagined I would write when That's, I grew up. <laughs> this is exactly where I want to get to. Yeah. Tell, tell that, me the uh, difference. Here. I mean, I and I, I mean, Evan and I talked about this a lot uh, before the the book came along about how you know a lot of the times I felt like cookbooks. We think of food as the intersection of everything that we care about in the world. You know, it's all the environmental issues, all the social issues, pleasure, family, community, like, like food can bring all these things into one place. And yet most, it feels, most cookbooks feel very, you know, one or two dimensional. Um, you know, it's, it's all about 
how do you do this and how do you do that and what tastes you know how are you going to impress your friends um and I, a lot of them are fantastic um not but it just felt like oh the, you know the, a cookbook could be so much more than that it could be so, it, it could be the you know the whole the whole harmonium like everything that you wanted to bring together in the world could could come in could come into a book around food um so when the reality of sitting down with an editor and Evan and figuring out how the book was going to come together hit and i realized that that book we've imagined was uh, still to be written, still to be written. <laughs> um, it was a little jarring and uh, and um, and humbling because I think one of the things I realized is there's a there's a people people build all that other stuff into their food without you telling them to do it and that's something that we've talked a lot about too at, at eggs that we've never wanted to be too pedantic. Um, and telling people about how great our ingredients were or why they should eat a certain way or why these things matter. We just wanted, you know, give them the food, make them excited about that, and then they're open to the to all the other stuff. And a cookbook kind of can play the same role, I think. So we do have... we there There is that stuff in the book. Um, you know, a little... Uh, you know, a little message about sourcing meat and little things about paying attention and... Um, but yeah, it didn't turn out to be the collective works of. <laughs> oh, that 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 that'll come. That'll come. Um, so I think the both of you are just the epitome of um, food responsibility, uh, local, fresh, sustainable, almost like they're old T-shirts. And, <laughs> and and now there's this huge expo, and you know, celebrating it. And where do you think? sustainability is today and and do you think that governments and large corporations are moving closer to being more sensitive to it and have you seen a change from the time you you actually got interested in it i know that michelle is one of our poster boys in the pavilion on talking about this do you do you think that this movement really has a big ripple effect in industry and government i'd like to think so um, you know, I think at the very least, it's uh, the issue is much more forward and uh, kind of broad-reaching as far as like name recognition, people to understand and talk about the idea of sustainability on some one level or another, whether it be organic food or green energy or um, a kind of a generally kind of sustainable lifestyle and in whatever area um, people choose to address it um, in the food realm. You know the, the the good food movement, the sustainable food food movement. I think it's it's there. It's real. It's not like a figment of our imagination, thankfully. Um, but it's there's such a it's so still so small, right? Um, and we talk a lot about you know what sustainability really means, like what you know. That's that's kind what of what does it really? Word. You know, it's a it's a very loaded word. Yeah, totally. Um, How do you define it, the two of you? We've said before, um, one of our attempts at it is like if if we're thinking about doing something, um, and we're asking ourselves if that's sustainable, then the, the question is, well, if if everyone did it, would it still be all right? Um, and that's again kind of a a generalization, but it gets you going in the right direction, I think, um, because. It, you know, I don't think there's one 
one definition of sustainability, you know, as we talked about with food and, and with this issue, it's place based, you know, it's based in community, it's based in localities and, you know, corporation, large corporations are kind of inherently not that. Um, so I think it's particularly difficult for businesses like that to, to adapt in a way that, that gets that sustainability, um, in the kind of specific way it needs to be addressed. Um, but I, as far as I know, I think there are efforts to, to, to move that that way. Yeah. I think it's really easy to get, it's really easy to get discouraged, especially when you're in a place like, uh, you know, you're, I think one of the things that happens for us is, you know, you see, um, you know, a big company take on some sustainability initiative and it feels really more. It starts selling organic yogurt. Is that, you know, do we give up something? I don't want anything to do with it anymore. And, it, and I, I understand that. Um, but I also think back, you know, when, when egg started, we didn't have Chipotle's on every corner. Um, Walmart wasn't selling organic yogurt. Uh, you know, McDonald's wasn't thinking about, you know, the sourcing of its chickens or the sourcing of its, you know, the way its pork was taken care of. And I, sure, maybe some of those initiatives and in those giant companies are cynical, um, but they're making, they're doing something. And I don't think that's something to be dismissive of. I think it's say, I think we say, great, we're here to keep moving, to keep pushing forward and to keep you know, like to keep thinking, like, how are we all going to live on this planet and keep it intact and someplace that we can stay in love with? Um, and, you know, the, and can, how many people can we bring along with us to try to keep those companies, you know, stumbling forward in their way? What do you think our biggest challenge is right now as cooks, professionals, human beings that eat? I think one of the things we've always been afraid of um, and felt kind of ever on the edge about is the sustainability sort of movement uh, taking the kind of curve of a trend rather than really becoming ingrained as something we uh, almost take for granted. Uh, that would be, be ideal if we could take it for granted and you didn't have to wonder what the label at the supermarket meant uh, when it said natural or pasture-raised or whatever that you just had an understanding of how food was meant to be raised and and could assume to a relative degree of certainty that that, that was happening. Um, but I think when when this when it becomes trendy, like when you walk around and you see things like food is fashion or like it's kind of broken off into this different sort of reality, um, that's when it becomes you know elitist or inaccessible. Any of those things I think pose a real threat to. Um, some of the progress that's been made becoming a little bit more permanent, you know, than, than it already is. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think that's right. I think, you know, we need to remember why we do this um, and keep doing it for those reasons. I mean, and and not think like, uh, you know, the sustain it, the farm, like, I mean, I've heard plenty of people say, and you, you, you knew it was going to happen. The minute it got, the minute people started getting excited about farm to table, you knew that there was going to be a day when, at least in the sort of fashion press, people were sick of it. Um, and if you let yourself be swept along by that, you're, we, we all lose. I was just up interviewing a bunch of farmers in Orange County about how they were keeping their farms going. And almost all of them said we would not be here. We would have gone under like, these are people who've had one of these people that had a farm for seven generations. We would be gone if it hadn't been for the local food movement. 
and and the, they don't sell in the green market. They don't sell to Manhattanites. But you know what we're doing has trickled out to all these places and will allow these people to make a living for themselves. Um, so I think like that's I feel that's the sort of uh, protection against cynicism that we have to keep in mind that you know these things really make a difference and people's lives depend on us you know not being cynical and not treating it as a fashion choice. Did you see that exhibit in the American Pavilion? Plug plug. Uh, <laughs> you got your book. I got the I got the Pavilion, um, where it showed when chefs started putting quinoa on their menu, it changed the economy of Ecuador, you know, and, and the tonnage. And it all went to small farmers, too. It wasn't that Ecuador got all this money to a large industrial base. but So, you know, the power of being a chef today is enormous, especially with the press and cookbooks that, you know, extend even if they can't get to your restaurant. Yeah, yeah. It's, always, it's always been enormous. I think now chefs are starting to realize a bit, a bit more, you know, that power and uh, the fact that they, they have a choice, you know, there is a choice to be made and, and it's important and um, you can't just think about your food costs as, you can't externalize all these things in the way that causes your behavior to become destructive uh, in a way that you don't take responsibility for, you know, you have to take responsibility for that. Well, that sounds like an appropriate heavy note to. <laughs> I think you know we've got we've got Milan Expo here, which is pretty serious stuff. How to feed you know nine billion people in twenty fifty, and it's come to the close of the show. I think we've got to let you go out there and wow people <laughs> in, the, in the population of Milan with your food. <laughs> and um, it's really been a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for coming. No, thank you so much for that. Bye, and uh, just a shout-out to our producer, Jack Inslee, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.